Grab your Bible and turn with me to Exodus chapter 25. When my wife Amber and I bought our first home four years ago, we were excited for a lot of reasons. Uh, One of those reasons was being able to host people. Uh, My parents, her parents, friends, other family. Uh, We have a space in our basement we designated as our guest area so we could have people come and stay with us. And then people started showing up. Uh, My in-laws. And then my in-laws again. And and then my in-laws again. And I realized that hosting someone in your home can take a lot of work. Uh, Some of you are really gifted at hospitality. Lord bless you. That's not me. All right. I got to work hard at it. Uh, You know, when someone comes to stay with you, it it takes work. You got to clean. You got to plan meals. You got to make sure they have everything they need. You got to entertain them. It can be a little stressful, right? Well, this morning, we're going to look at a people who built a house to host God. Think about that for a minute. Yes, the creator of the universe told them that he wanted to come and live with them. And they had to start preparing for that day. Talk about intimidating, right? The people I'm talking about are the people we've been following throughout the book of Exodus. These are Abraham's descendants, the man to which God said, I'm going to make you into a great nation, and your people will be my people, and I will be your God. God made a covenant with Abraham to bless his people and through them to bless all the nations on the earth. However, when we opened the book of Exodus, we found that God's people had been in slavery in Egypt for a few centuries. Yet we saw that God was at work. He raised up a man named Moses to deliver the people and he did so in a miraculous way right through the Red Sea. And having been freed from slavery and made into a mighty nation, the people began their trek to meet their God. They arrived at Mount Sinai, the place where God chose to meet with his people, and God came down on the mountain in smoke and thunder and lightning and fire. They couldn't even step foot on the mountain or they would die. In fact, they told Moses, they were so terrified, they said, you talk to us, don't let him talk to us or we will die. So Moses served as the mediator between God and the people. He brought them the Ten Commandments and the law, and they made this covenant with God, agreeing to keep his law. And now Moses has gone back up the mountain again, this time for 40 days and 40 nights. And he's prepared to receive instructions directly from God. And what God is going to ask him to do next is honestly, for us here today, a bit strange when you think about it. But it is one of the most important parts of the entire Old Testament. God is going to command Moses to build him a house. Why? Why does God need a house when he's present everywhere? Can God even live in a house when he's, you know, infinite? And how is he going to live with people who he already told, hey, stay away or you're going to die? Those are the questions we need to wrestle with as we walk through chapters 25 through 27. This is going to be a flyover this morning of the instructions for building what was called the tabernacle. If we were doing a Bible study class or Sunday school class, we would spend a lot more time, you know, getting into the details and breaking everything down. And and let me tell you, there's some great resources out there that can help you see the significance of all the different parts of the tabernacle. But what I want to do this morning is give us an overview. Then I want to focus in on the purpose of the tabernacle as a whole. What does this home teach us about God? And what does it mean for us today as followers of Jesus? 
Well, let's start with our text to find out. Look with me at Exodus chapter 25, and let's start in verses 1 through 9. The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the people of Israel that they take for me a contribution. From every man whose heart moves him, you shall receive the contribution for me. And this is the contribution that you shall receive from them. Gold, silver, and bronze, blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen, goat's hair, tanned ramskins, goat skins, acacia wood, oil for the lamp, spices for the anointing oil and for the fragrant incense, onyx stones and stones for setting, for the ephod and for the breastpiece, and let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst, exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and of all its furniture, so shall you make it. First thing we see here is that the materials for the tabernacle were given by the people. And these materials were the nicest, finest stuff you could find in this time period. This is top dollar stuff, and this is what will be used to construct God's home. Here's the second thing we see in this first section. We see the entire purpose of the tabernacle. Here it is, verse 8. It says, let them make me a sanctuary that, here it comes, I may dwell in their midst. The key purpose for building the tabernacle, God says, is so that he can dwell in their midst. And this is a big deal right here. As it tells us that God wants to live with his people. He's not a God who's going to rule from far away, up high in the sky, and look down on his people, barking orders and shooting lightning bolts. He's a God who wants to be up close and personal with his people. He wants to be with them and live in their midst. And in order for that to be possible, the place God dwells must be holy. That's why he calls it a sanctuary. That word sanctuary means holy place. Why does God's house need to be a holy place? Well, because he is a holy God. We saw this with Mount Sinai. God's holiness means he cannot mix with things that are unholy. There must be a separation, a division. God's holiness and man's sin necessitates some sort of barrier. The tabernacle was that barrier. It made it safe for a holy God to live with sinful people. It actually served to protect them. And above all, it made it possible for them to have a relationship with their God. And this brings us to the last thing we see here. The Israelites had to make the tabernacle exactly as God said. That's one of the reasons these chapters can be a little tough to read through. Because there are a lot of details and a lot of repetition. But this is because God did not want Israel to just wing it. They had to follow the exact instructions given. Now, some of y'all would have a hard time with that, wouldn't you? Like, who in here is the type of person to just throw away the instruction manual and just figure it out on your own? Raise your hand. Where are you at? Bless you. Bless you. Okay, now, who in here is like me and you love instructions? Very specific instructions. Thank you. Thank you. You got it right. Yeah, that's good. No, that's me. Like, I got to have a step-by-step. Whenever there's the rare occasion when I cook dinner, I tell my wife, please, leave me a recipe. I need instructions. I cannot just make this up. That's how it was for Israel. Israel had to follow the instructions. But why? Why was it so important that they use this kind of material and measure everything to this specific length? Well, it goes back to the purpose of the tabernacle. This is a home for God. And as a home for God, it's going to represent two things. First off, the tabernacle would represent heaven. This tent was the place where heaven would touch earth. This is where God would choose to dwell on earth as he does in heaven. 
Look, we know that God cannot be confined to a single room or a single structure. God is in all places at all times. We call that omnipresence. He's not constrained by time or space. But God chooses to manifest his glory in a particular way in particular places. That's what heaven is. It's the fullness of God's glory. And the tabernacle is intended to be a slice of heaven on earth. In fact, this is fascinating. In the book of Hebrews, the author tells us that the tabernacle was a copy of a heavenly tabernacle. That's why God was so particular. He wasn't designing something entirely new, but he was making a sort of earthly replica of his heavenly throne room. God was taking what is in heaven and representing it on the earth so that this was a sort of earthly palace for the king of the universe. And there's so much we could say about that. But here's the second thing the tabernacle represented. It was intended to be a miniature Garden of Eden. We've seen throughout the book of Exodus that there are a lot of connections back to Genesis. The Israelites being delivered from Egypt was a recreation of sorts, making them into a new people. God called them his firstborn son, like a new Adam and Eve. And we will see several images in the tabernacle that point back to Eden. Eden was also a slice of heaven on earth. It was a garden sanctuary, a place where God lived with his people and manifested his glory in a special way. So so the tabernacle is God trying to get back to his original creation and intention for his people, to dwell with them, to be with them. That's what he's always wanted. And we'll see that the tabernacle is just one step along the way to making that a reality. Let's look now at the different parts of the tabernacle. And I'm not going to go through here and read all these verses, but if you have your, your Bible, I want to encourage you to look at the headings in your Bible and kind of flip along and follow along with me. First thing we see in chapter 25 are the instructions for making the Ark of the Covenant. We can thank Indiana Jones for helping us to be familiar with the Ark. Uh, but why do these instructions come first? If you think about it, I would think that the, the tabernacle itself would come first. But the ark is first because God wants us to see that it's the most important part of this whole thing. The ark of the covenant was the holiest item in Israel's possession. It was the only item that lived inside the centermost part of the tabernacle, a room that was called the Holy of Holies, or literally the holiest place. But what was the ark? Well, essentially, it was a really fancy box, more like a chest made of wood and covered completely in pure gold. Inside would be stored Israel's most sacred possessions, including the Ten Commandments written on stone by God. The ark was strictly forbidden from being touched. Later in the Old Testament, there's a story where a guy accidentally touches it with one hand and he drops dead on the spot. So when they had to pack up and move the tabernacle, they would carry the ark by two poles that were attached to it. And that's not all, but there's another very important part. On top of the ark was a gold cover called the mercy seat. On top of the mercy seat and attached to it were two gold cherubim, which were heavenly beings. And think with me, where else do we see cherubim in the Bible? Well, two places. One, they guard the entrance to the Garden of Eden after Adam and Eve were kicked out. So there's the Eden reference. And two, they are in heaven at God's throne. So there's a reference to heaven. 
And that was the purpose of the ark. This was the center of gravity for Israel where heaven touched earth. This was the connection point between those two places. And God said that he would speak to the people from above the mercy seat and between the cherubim. So that means the ark functioned as a sort of footstool for God's heavenly throne. The ark is the most important piece of this whole thing. Next, we move outside of the most holy place to what was simply called the holy place. Those two rooms were separated by a curtain. And in the holy place, we see first a table. It was, again, made of wood and covered with gold. And, And what was the purpose of the table? We see that on the table there were to be plates and bowls and dishes and bread that they called the bread of the presence. This was not unlike a really fancy kitchen table. Let's remember that God established his covenant with his people through a meal. Eating with God was also something they did when they offered the peace offering. So the table was a symbol of God's desire to fellowship and meet with his people. Across from the table, also in the holy place, we have a golden lampstand. Made from pure gold, it was modeled after a tree with seven branches holding seven lamps. We see in the text that it was intended to give light in the space in front of it. Think with me. What was in front of it? What was across from it? That was the table for the bread. So the lampstand provided light, and it was to be kept burning by the priest all the time. And certainly, this was to give them light to do their work. But it was another symbol pointing to God's desire to fellowship with his people. This room, the holy place, was not unlike a family home in this time period. You had a lamp to give light, a table to sit and eat. All of this showing that God wants not only to rule over his people from a throne, but to live with them in fellowship. Chapter 26, the entire chapter is devoted to just the structure of the tabernacle tent itself. And that alone tells us how significant this was. The tabernacle was a series of curtains and frames made from the finest materials. Those curtains were covered by a few different layers of animal skins to protect it from the weather. And then all of this was clasped and held together so as to become one big tent. Inside the tabernacle itself, there was one more curtain called a veil that separated the holy place from the most holy place. And here's how this section is summed up. Look at the end of Exodus 26, verses 33 35. And you shall hang the veil from the clasp and bring the ark of the testimony in there within the veil. And the veil shall separate for you the holy place from the most holy. You shall put the mercy seat on the ark of the testimony in the most holy place. And you shall set the table outside the veil and the lampstand on the south side of the tabernacle opposite the table. And you shall put the table on the north side. You got it? Track it with me so far? See, one nod. We're doing all right. That is the tabernacle itself, okay? Let's, last chapter, chapter 27. Here we move outside of the tabernacle into the courtyard. First, we have the bronze altar. Notice that as we move out from the center, the metals being used become less valuable. That's significant. The altar made of bronze is the place where priests would offer the sacrifices. It was a hollow box with grating on top of it, not unlike, you know, your Weber grill. Uh, That's because a lot of the sacrifices would have been burned. 
Next, in chapter 27, we have the courtyard itself, again, made with these series of curtains and bases. It, it created an area where the priest could work outside the tabernacle. This courtyard surrounded the whole, structure, the whole tabernacle to close it all off, and it measured 150 feet long and 75 feet wide, totaling 11,250 square feet. So, not a small thing. And remember, this was meant to be portable. They were to take it up or take it down and put it up any time they traveled through the wilderness. A big, big job. And last thing, we have the oil for the lamp inside the holy place. As I read this, I asked myself, why did they put the oil here and not after the lamp? And my answer to that is, I don't know. You're going to have to ask someone smarter than me. But that's how it closes out. And that concludes chapter 27. Those are the instructions for building the tabernacle. So if you are still awake, say, I am. If you're still listening to me, say, I am. And if you're not, say I'm not. I'm kidding. Don't say that. That would hurt my feelings. But no, let's, let's now ask the obvious question here. Why so much of this book devoted to a big tent? Why such specific details and instructions? Why? Oh, why? Because, I hope you've seen by now, this is not just a tent. This is God's house. This is the place where heaven touches earth. And this is how God will dwell with his people in this time period. God wants to live with his people that he saved and redeemed and set apart. And this is how he will do it. So in the rest of our time together, let's bring it home. And let me give you three ways we see from these chapters that God dwells with his people. Here's the first. Number one, God dwells with his people in a personal way. In high school at the grocery store that I worked at, we had a general manager who we saw every few months. He managed several of the stores, and so he only came into our store when he was mad. Uh, he was this short, bald-headed guy who never smiled, and his face got really red when he came in. We knew something was wrong and someone was going to get screamed at. I I've learned that for a lot of people, that's how they view God. He's this cold and distant manager who only shows up when they mess up so they can be corrected again. Guys, the story of the Exodus tells us that could not be further from the truth. From the very beginning, God pursues his people. He hears their cry, and he comes down to save them. He raises up an unlikely redeemer in Moses who he'd been preparing for decades he graciously leads his people even when they doubt. He feeds them in the wilderness even when they complain and want to go back to slavery. He gives them the law so they know how to live. And now he's coming to live with them. He's setting up his home in their neighborhood on their street. And he wants to have a relationship with them. That's what we see most clearly in the table and the lamp. God didn't need a table so he could eat and he didn't need a lamp to see. He designed his home in such a way to demonstrate his desire for fellowship with his people. And he didn't stop with the tabernacle. What we see as we continue the story of the Bible is that the tabernacle was meant to be a temporary structure. One day, the Israelites would make it to the promised land, and they would build a temple. The temple was the permanent version of the tabernacle, and it was very similar. But the temple wasn't meant to be a permanent structure either. It was destroyed one day. See, God had a plan to get even more personal with his people. And that's by manifesting his glory, not in a tent or in a building, but in a person. 
In John chapter 1, John's gospel, he uses this language to describe Jesus who he calls the Word. He says that Jesus was there in the beginning with God because he was God. And then he says this in John 1 verse 14. He says, and the Word, Jesus, became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So Jesus, the the eternal Son of God, became flesh and dwelt among us. That word dwelt in the original language of the Bible is the verb form for the noun that means tent or tabernacle. So John is telling us right here, he's making this connection that Jesus became flesh and tabernacled among us. He pitched his tent among us. In other words, Jesus was the living embodiment, the fulfillment of this tabernacle from Exodus. Think about it. Just as the tabernacle was the place where heaven touched earth, the the full manifestation of God's presence, Jesus was that in a human body. Colossians 1.19 says, For in him, in Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Jesus was the most personal way God dwelt among his people because he was a person, a living, breathing, walking, talking, tabernacle on feet. Jesus was the fulfillment of this whole thing as he's the fulfillment of all the Old Testament. Here's the second way we see that God dwells with his people. Number two, God dwells with his people in a provisional way. By that, I mean that God used the tabernacle to provide a means for him to be with his people. God provided a series of steps so that his holiness could dwell among sinful people safely. We see that with the veil blocking the most holy place. But we see that most clearly in the altar. The altar was one of the most important aspects of the whole structure because it provided a way for the priest to make atonement for the sins of the people. By killing an animal and sacrificing it to God, God's judgment was placed on the animal instead of on the people. The animal took the place of the people as a substitutionary sacrifice. And this too, we know, was fulfilled in Jesus, specifically in his death. The cross was God's ultimate provision to be with his people. At the cross, God poured out his judgment for all sin, for all time, upon his own son instead of you. Jesus took our place. But unlike the animal sacrifices, Jesus only had to die once. Because he was a perfect man, because he was God, his sacrifice, we can say, truly paid it all. And now through him, the way to God and a relationship with him is open. We saw that with the curtain being torn in the temple at his death. Here's the third and last way we see that God dwells with his people in the tabernacle. Number three, God dwells with his people in a particular way. One thing I pointed out was how specific and detailed the instructions for the tabernacle were. It's one of the reasons people skip over these chapters. Their eyes kind of glaze over when they hear it. There's so much detail about every little part. This is because God wanted his people to see that they had to come to him in his way, not in their own way. We'll see in a couple weeks what happens when Israel tries to come to God in their own way. They mess things up bad. So God wants them to see they have to come to him in his way, and they cannot do that haphazardly or casually. They needed to come, with God, to, to come 
to God with reverence and obedience to his commands. The other reason God was so particular is because remember what the tabernacle stood for. Again, the book of Hebrews tells us it was a copy or a shadow of God's heavenly throne room. It was also intended to be a new sort of garden of Eden. And for this reason, there had to be order. God is a God of order. When he created the world, he designed his creation in a particular way. He put everything in its proper place. He took what was chaotic and brought peace. And the tabernacle is a picture of that. Amidst the chaos among God's people and in the nations around them, the tabernacle was orderly and structured and holy. And holy. It was a safe place amidst the evil in the world. God dwelled with his people in a particular way. And that particularity continued with Jesus. Jesus said, you don't just come to God however you want. You don't come to God by being a good person, keeping these laws, or following these rituals. Jesus said in John 14, 6, he said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus was and is the only way to a relationship with God because he alone has fulfilled every single thing we've seen. He alone is the one who is seated at the right hand of God's throne, surrounded by angels and cherubim in God's holy presence. He alone is the bread of life and the light of the world as the table and the lamp point us to. He alone is the once and for all sacrifice that paid for our sins forever. He alone is the great high priest that ushers us into the presence of God. And he alone is the tabernacle itself, the fullness of God in a human person. And here's the most amazing part. God's desire to dwell with his people did not stop by sending his son Jesus. Jesus is the way to God, but once we come to him, listen to what we read about us as the church. Paul said this in 1 Corinthians 3.16. He says, do you not know that you, church, are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? See, collectively, as God's people, as the church, we are the tabernacle today. We are the place where heaven touches earth, and we have the fullness of God's presence. And that's not just true for us corporately. It's also true for us personally. Listen to this in 1 Corinthians 6. He says, or do you, Christian, not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? See, because we have the Holy Spirit living inside each of us, we are each walking and talking tabernacles. We are heaven touching earth, and we take the presence of God with us wherever we go. God dwells with his people today by living in his people. Isn't that amazing? But we still feel this separation, don't we? We live in a sinful world. We have sinful flesh. We still feel like there's this longing, like there's more to come. And we see that there is. There's an ultimate fulfillment of God's plan to be with his people. And praise God, we get a perfect picture of it in Revelation chapter 21. This is the very, very end. John has a vision. He says, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming, watch this, coming down 
out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. At the end of time, when all is said and done, we will fully and finally be with God forever. The plan will be complete. There will be no need for a temple or a tabernacle or an offering because heaven and earth will be one. And we will experience the fullness of God's presence for all eternity. We will see him and talk with him. And his plan to dwell with his people will be complete. But here's where it starts today. It starts with Jesus. He is the way to God. He's the only way. And today he's inviting you to come to him. If you will turn from your sin and place your trust in Jesus, he will save you, change you, and fill you with God's presence. Unlike the Israelites in Exodus, you'll be able to walk right into God's house and talk to him and meet with him. Not in a fancy building. You won't need a priest. You won't need the right animals. You won't need the right clothes. But you can come to him anytime and any place. That's because the curtain is torn, the sacrifice has been made, and the way is open for you. No matter who you are, where you've been, what you've done, the only question left is will you come home? Will you come home to be with God through Jesus? Let's go to the Lord in prayer.